Working Class Audio is made possible by the support of Cali Audio, DistroKid, Sampley Audio, Audio Technica, Gearspace, and Grace Design. This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 285. Working Class Audio, navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. Thanks, Chuck. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is session 285 you're listening to. My guest today is Sam Pura, who is the owner of The Panda Studios, located here in the Bay Area. He's worked with the bands The Story So Far, Basement, and Hundredth, as well as a million other bands. He's a very, very busy guy. And he was introduced to me by our mutual friend, Daniel Holter, former WCA guest, Daniel Holter. And Sam joins me for a great conversation about his world and his journey so far. So Sam Pura coming up here on the Working Class Audio podcast. Grab your coffee cups, friends. I'll share with you what I've been doing in my quarantine time. So what's it been? What is it, like three months now we've all been in quarantine, something like that? I've honestly forgotten. But when it all started, I, I, I may have mentioned that I see this time period as an opportunity to prepare for the time when we're out of quarantine. I've utilized this time to educate myself, uh, to reevaluate how I do things explore different things that I could do with working class audio, refine my systems of mixing and mastering, reevaluate how I can make it easier for my clients to, you know, get what they need from me from an audio perspective and make those transactions as smooth as possible. And I've mentioned it numerous times, you know, when I say educate myself, I've been spending a, a large amount of time with audiobooks with the Masterclass series. The Masterclass series I've mentioned uh, several times to you. I'll mention it again. It's just, once again, it's a great place to learn a lot of different uh, skills and cherry pick some of those skills from people from many different industries, sports, business, food, filmmaking, any of that stuff. I, I highly encourage you to check it out. There's a lot to be learned from, you know, uh, somebody talk about or listen to somebody talk about their experiences within their particular field and somebody watching somebody like uh, Warner Herzog or David Lynch, Bob Iger from Disney or um, Gordon Ramsay, Spike Lee. I gain a lot from that. That really motivates me in, in many different areas. Uh, the audiobooks, I came to the conclusion some time ago that Absorbing books through audiobooks is better for me. I'm a very slow reader. It takes me forever to read a book. An audiobook, you sit back, you listen, and maybe it's the fact that I'm an audio person that that appeals to me. That might appeal to you if you find yourself being a slow reader and maybe you feel guilty that you're not consuming more books. Give that a try. Further educate yourself on different topics and things that you find important. That's kind of an overarching thing too about what I'm telling you now is there's a lot to be learned from other industries, other people who don't do audio. They look at the world in a different way. They look at business in a different way. They look at uh, entertainment in a different way. There are lessons to be learned that can be applied 
to our audio world. So that's been a large amount of my time. Masterclass, Audible, doing the audiobook thing, and just spending time when you have it, quiet time to gather your thoughts, you know, where you're not bombarded by 24-hour news and uh, coronavirus information and where you can just sit and think about where am I at, where have I been, where do I need to go, where do I want to go, and how do I get there? And regardless of where you're at in the world of audio, no matter what the discipline of audio it is that you are in, this is a great time to take stock of all of this stuff. You know, I'm sure it's a reflective time for many of you just because of the nature of what we're facing. It can also be a, a great way to divert your attention away if things are tense for you at home, uh, to focus your mind on, on these areas to inspire you. I've also been walking quite a bit in the neighborhood, even though they closed down my regular walking spot. Uh, we found it in our family that, you know, there's places to walk no matter what. You know, exercise definitely is, is key for me, and I bet it's key for a lot of you because, you know, the nature of our business is we sit in front of computer screens, you know, looking at a DAW. It's great to get out. It's great to really get out and get the blood flowing. I feel a lot less guilty about sitting on my butt after I've done that. Some of you may have been spending time a little more stressed out than, than I have been about things, and I'm sorry for that. And if you are, maybe you could take some of my ideas here of education, meditation, evaluation, all of these things that, and, and exercise, and work those into your world if you haven't been. And hopefully that will relieve a bit of the stress and get you focused on the future and I'm hoping that it helps you keep your head up and focused beyond where we're at right now, if, if it's a stressful time for you. So utilize your time as, as best you can, friends. Uh, I've said it before. Give yourself a social media break. Give yourself a news break, information diets, etc. And focus on you. Focus on where you want to be after this thing is over. And adapt to the change as best you can. And I know that change is difficult, but look at this as an opportunity and if there's any book that i can recommend to you and i'll put a link in the show notes uh there's a book that you should check out called the obstacle is the way and i think i've maybe talked about that with various guests check it out maybe it'll give you a different perspective on the obstacle that we have in front of us meaning this virus and how you can get around it and work your way past that obstacle all right that's it thanks for listening cheers most of you already know about Grace Design and have known about them for years. Uh, they've been around since 1994. It was started by the two brothers, Michael and Eben Grace, who still run the company to this day. And you already know that they make incredible sounding products for us all. What you might not know if you don't know them is that Michael and Eben are two of the nicest people on the planet. Easily approachable, very knowledgeable. You might have met them at a trade show and experienced this. Without a doubt, it's one of my favorite companies out there in the world of pro audio. You might have heard me a few times talking about the Grace 908 Atmos controller. 
I think the most elegant solution, if you're going to be doing Atmos, that is the best solution out there, as far as I'm concerned, hands down. And prior to that, I was using the Stereo 905 controller for many years. Not only that, but most recently, I have used their 108 mic pre's to do the Room 219 combo jazz record that you might have heard me talk about. The point is, is that they check all the boxes for me. They're incredibly nice people. They make incredibly great products. They're located here in the United States in Lyons, Colorado, and employ a number of people. They're the epitome of a small business here in the U.S., and I just love that whole thing. So if you are in the market for mic preamps or instrument preamps or monitor controllers, this is the company to check out hands down. If you don't know about them, go to gracedesign.com, check them out, and if you're in the market for any of those products, you absolutely have to consider what they offer because what they offer is superior build quality and sound quality. And those of you who bought their products in the 90s that are still using them, you know exactly what I'm talking about. So check them out, gracedesign.com. I know the business of audio is a frustrating one sometimes. The audio part's pretty, pretty fun, but it's the business of it and the career part of it that's a little challenging to many of us. I can completely empathize with that. And if you thought to yourself, God, I wish I could talk to somebody about this, you can do that. You could talk with me about it. As a matter of fact, you can book me for a coaching and consulting call over Zoom very simply. Just head on over to workingclassaudio.com. If you click on the menu button at the top of the menu, there is a link that says coaching and consulting with Matt. Super simple. Click on the link, book me in for an hour on a Zoom call, and we will discuss your particular situation and I will help you get refocused, re-inspired, and figure out what is the best path forward for you. If your situation requires a little more extensive conversation, we can absolutely book a series of calls and, like I say, get you focused and get you moving forward. I've been there, and when you don't have anybody to talk to about it, it's a little frustrating. So head on over to workingclassaudio.com, click on the menu button, and book yourself in for a Zoom call with me. And we can sit down and chat, coffees in hand, ready to tackle the business of audio together. Let's get to it. Sam Pura here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Sam, welcome to the podcast. Hi, thank you so much. I'm so excited to be doing this. I'm excited. You, you are a burst of energy, I discovered when I was doing a little research on you this morning. And I thought, oh man, this guy's going to be a ball of fire. I'm, I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, thanks. I'm excited about that. I don't know what it is about me. I've always been very abrasive and high energy. It's not like caffeine or as some people have suggested, cocaine. I'm just, I just like life. I just want to go do tight shit every day, you know? Well, we became connected because of our mutual friend and former WCA guest, Daniel Holter. Yep. How did you and Daniel meet? Very interesting question. Tumblr. It was the original days of when Tumblr was a thing. I used to run a Tumblr where I would, that was how I treated Instagram a long time ago. I was like, I'm doing tight shit. I want to make a blog. I was really into this dude, Mike Giant, who's the artist from, or graffiti artist from San Francisco. I'm not sure if you're familiar with any of his artwork. He's fantastic. He only works in Sharpie because he's colorblind. So everything he does is just Sharpie on white. So he ran this really cool blog. So I was like, I want to just throw up my pictures every day and show people that I'm doing tight shit and making records and stuff. And so Daniel was one of the only other audio guys on that platform. I'm talking like when the platform first started, we were on that. And then he was the first guy I knew like on Twitter as well, too. Hmm. This was all before the iPhones were even coming out. We were using laptops to be posting and uploading photos that we were taking to Tumblr. It was like the new interactive Flickr at the time. So <laughs> that's how I know Daniel is from Tumblr. 
Because you guys were just on these platforms and you'd always see his name? Yeah, I'd always see his audio stuff because he was like one of the only guys posting audio things or like recording studio stuff at the time on Tumblr. Huh, Tumblr. I used to post the podcast to Tumblr as far as just letting people know. Okay. And there's like probably two people out there following. Yeah, so yeah, like, yeah. Maybe I'm not going to spend time doing this and move on to other platforms. No, totally. That was like one of the first things that existed that was utilizing the iPhone in a way like Twitter was using it. It was like the first social media platform that was really taking advantage of the iPhone's layout and like building websites to it and having convenient upload buttons. It was a very revolutionary thing at the time. So where did you grow up? I grew up here in Newark, California. Okay. So born in Newark, went to school in Newark, and then eventually went to a high school at Moreau Catholic in Hayward. And then was kicked out of Morale Catholic during my junior year, finished my senior year at Mid Peninsula in Palo Alto, which oddly enough, Eric Valentine went to. And I found that out when we were talking about schools when we were working together. So yeah. And then after that, I went to Expression Digital College and just was always recording my band and my friends' bands that entire time. And it just became all of a sudden people come to me and now I'm a recording studio. You know, I have to ask you why you got kicked out. Oh, yeah. Well, really bad grades. It was college prep school, Catholic school, 1.7 GPA. My sister also graduated two years before me. It was the highest in her class, 4.3 GPA. I was the black sheep embarrassment of my family in that way. <laughs> but uh, they always supported me. They knew I was this unique, delicate butterfly that if I could be like pointed in the right direction and if they could harness my energy and have it towards something that was going to be positive towards me, that's where I was going to excel. So I grew up playing ice hockey, actually, down here. And so it's funny. This is why my studio is right here in Fremont is because it's down the street from the ice rink that I grew up playing at. So I always knew that this was this quiet industrial area that I could possibly move into and build my studio at. So you run, is it Panda Studios? Yeah, The Panda Studios. The Panda Studios. Yep, it's 2,500 square feet. We're in my control room, which we call the West Control Room. And then next door, I have the East Control Room. So it's two units connected and you walk between both of them. The door right behind me is my isolation booth and that goes right into the other studio there. So another control room, another live room. Very cool. How long have you been there? Man, I think maybe eight, nine. This is my seventh location, but I've been here like maybe eight or nine years now. So I was subleasing places. One of my first places was in Oakland on 1234 47th Street, which was a 10-unit live-work facility that was basically just a bunch of bands that lived there. That was like my college dorm when I was going to Expression. Mm -hmm. So I was the you know recording all these bands from out of state and smoking weed with all the neighbors who were making art stuff. It was super like hippie fucking Oakland community time. So that was super cool. After that, I eventually was subleasing Third Eye Blind's old studio off of Brandon Street in San Francisco. I forget what his name is. The guy who worked with the hieroglyphics and stuff, Matt something. He took it over for a while. I'm not sure if he's still there. But so I was there for a minute, and then I was in a practice space at Fremont. And eventually, I was just like, fuck this. I'm going to build my own fucking place and get a big enough spot to actually construct. So when we got here, it was nothing. It was just a complete blank, empty warehouse. And we built all the walls, did everything here. Was that Matt Kelly? I think it's Matt Kelly, yeah. Yeah, Matt Kelly, yeah, definitely. Longtime Bay Area engineer and a former yep. WCA guest who worked with, I think he even worked with Tupac at one point. He's probably like Too Short and all those, any of the Bay Area hip-hop things. Oh, yeah. I've never met Matt, but everyone I know of that knows Matt says he's a super fantastic guy. Oh, yeah, he's he's awesome. Great, That's awesome. great person. Well, so this space that you're in now, that's 2,500 yeah. square feet, so do you rent yeah. that? 
So I rent this, yeah. Okay. Same landlord the whole time. She's super cool. Basically, the entire units here are owned by a conglomerate of inherited families. She's like, no one's going to sell this at any time soon. Also, they rezoned the entire area around us for new housing because we're right next to Tesla. And so it's all new housing, and they stopped exactly where we are. We're the final industrial area that they will never fuck with. So I'm super, like, tucked in here. My landlord loves me. She calls me her favorite tenant. I pay rent on time every fucking month. It's totally cool. I can make whatever fucking noise here. I can do whatever the fuck I want. And since I have two spots here, I kind of have a little bit more seniority privilege as well, too. So yeah, everything's super secure here. I mean, I would love to own my spot, but at the same time, my rent's super consistent, super cheap. I'm on a good lease. Everything's been fucking great. Huh. That's really cool. So I noticed on the website, there's some bunk beds, sleeping arrangements. Yep. How does that work from a zoning perspective? Or are you just kind of flying under the radar? Yeah, well, I, my landlord specifically knows that people come and crash here and they're from bands that are from out of state, but no one lives here. There is no one living here. We're always working and operating. There's the shower here. To be honest, there's people who live in some of their units here and she pretty much turns a blind eye to that, but I'm not actually breaking any zoning things. We're totally cool. And like, I've had fire marshals walk through here and be super nice to me and be like, this is great, man. This looks awesome. This is what a cool spot. I've been flying so transparent. Anyone who knows what I do knows that I'm the crazy smoking weed guy who just makes music here all the time and pays my rent. So you said fire marshals. So was that a yeah. result of the ghost ship fire? No, it was actually before Ghost Ship, but I thought they were going to crank up after Ghost Ship, but they actually didn't. Instead, she I think she kind of cranked up on making sure no one was living in their spots and kind of gave them the pressure. So, yeah, every spot here, it's like 20 units here. I know all the neighbors. Everyone's super cool. Anytime that a spot opens up, it gets turned over immediately. One of the people picks them up or one of their friends picks them up. We're all pretty chill right here. That's great. Yeah, it's awesome. It's a golden moment, a golden spot in time for you there. Yeah, and well, exactly. It's especially because when I was in Oakland originally, I think I was paying like twenty seven fifty at a twelve hundred square feet facility. And then when I was using that Oakland spot, that Oakland spot was thirty eight hundred dollars a month. Sorry, San Francisco spot on brand it was like thirty eight hundred dollars a month. It's like if I want to make any money, I gotta have no overhead. I gotta keep this as low as possible. So that's why I was like, find Fremont. It's out of the way, but it's still you got six eighty, you got eight eighty, you got Bart, which just finished the entire old Warp Springs development right here. So you can literally ride a bike to the state here now. It's super chill. I got in here real early. Everything's been super consistent for me. If I were to try to do what I did now, I would definitely have to own the spot and do that. But also, fortunately, because I used to live in my Oakland spot, I went through that entire fucking hassle of I can't live where I work and I can't constantly be in audio mode and then like be crashing with the bands who are crashing here. I have to fucking go home and I have to leave work and come back. That's the way I work best. You figured that out long ago. Yeah, thank God, yeah. <laughs> yeah, because you got to get your own personal time away from the bands. I totally get that. Yeah, and also it's just like, it's one of those things, like I have a couple guitars in my house and I never play them because they're sitting there. Because they're constantly there, I never have this, I leave it and be like, I need to play this. It's just, I, it's, I would feel the same way about my audio room. I probably wouldn't use it at my house. When I'm here, I'm making fucking shit and I'm just working full on audio mode. When I'm home, I don't have studio stuff. I don't even have an interface or like anything to record any ideas other than my iPhone. I'm just in home mode. So how do you get the work that you do? How do bands find out about you? Just literally word of mouth, man. It's just people who hear the product and are like, wow, I should head up that guy and work with him to make some records. Because that's, that's how I started. MySpace days, it's so funny to think of. 
initially in MySpace days, I was in a bunch of the band's top eights. So if you would go to their page, it would be like the top eight friends that they have. And so it would be like, oh, the Panda Studios. And also this was at the time where when you would go to the page, a song would automatically load up and play. So I would do these bands and I would just make their shit sound so good and so big. And so you go to like one stupid band's page. It was clearly this novice amateur demo. And then you'd go to this other band's page and it's fucking huge and loud and he automatically plays and then you see the panda studios in the top eight and that's how it happened i just made a bunch of hardcore bands records i was making a bunch of metal records because i grew up playing in a bunch of metal bands and stuff like that so i was always making abrasive raw sounding stuff like i wanted it to always be real but sound super professional super consistent super quantized gridded but raw real sounds not generated inside of a computer so people just gravitated towards coming to me and really liking that sound and it just that's kind of always been my clientele, you know? I know that you're, you're a big fan of Eric Valentine's mm -hmm. in, to the point where you actually also have a drumbrella. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I definitely, self-admittedly, will rip off Eric Valentine as much as possible because at the end of the day, the stuff that he comes through, it's, I listened to this podcast the other day with, the, it's the 1975 singer. And he's talking with Brian Eno, and I fucking love Brian Eno, and I love the 1975. And Eno, being so genius, created his own new word, which is senius. And his whole point is, is that, you know, he does something, and they're like, wow, that's genius. And he's like, no, actually, I'm just the guy who's being able to articulate this body of work that has influenced me, you know what I mean? And like, Eric is that guy, he's senior. He has gone through the entire process that he really has refined the best end results to troubleshoot and problem solve things. And I really trust his method and his workflow and his ideology of how he approaches audio. I think it's genius, it's senior. Yeah, it's interesting just kind of pulling back a bit and looking at how different engineers create their world, create their sound, help facilitate what bands and artists do when we're talking about music. Yep. There are those that just dig in deep. They don't yep. have families. They don't have kids. They focus so hardcore. And Eric is one of those guys. And yep. completely immersed. Yeah. Like everything else doesn't exist except yep. this. And it's almost like a transcendental meditation focus. The only thing you are focused in on is the present moment of following the road of the pursuit of audio. That's it. That's the only thing that fucking matters. Yeah. And, and I'm wondering, do you also follow that for yourself? Absolutely. I mean, I always like to use the production process of movies. I, I think it helps people understand that what we do here is much more of a process and much more of a bigger picture than just recording your fucking band. Capturing audio and recording a band is just such a limiting way of, it's like drawing with just pencil. Like I want to create art. I want to paint broad pictures. I want to make soundscapes and I want to create emotional landscapes for songs to live in that when people listen to it connects with them and it becomes part of their day and it becomes part of their identity that's what music is and i think eric is like a really good example of well what is it about audio that gives me this emotional reaction mm -hmm. and so he follows every single scientific step and process 
because he's basically a scientist. He just cares so much about audio that it's like, why does audio make me feel like this is so interesting? Why do I prefer this highly distorted tone over this very clean, correct tone? What is it about it? I really respect that. And I really try to be a director with bands for that. I'm not the screenwriter. I'm not the fucking actor. I'm the director who's helping harness all of this into a very cohesive, beautiful picture where when you watch this and listen to this, you're just like, this is amazing. What is it about this that is amazing? Why do I feel stoked on this? I just try to follow the path of making things feel important. You know, it's interesting. It's a Monday as you and I record this interview. Yeah. And as of this moment, I have a new podcast episode out with Dallas Taylor, who's the host of the podcast called 20,000 Hertz. And nice. my conversation with Dallas, he considers himself more of a sound designer. He makes all kinds of stuff other than music. Yeah. But our conversation or my conversation with him and you is following a very similar track about the emotion of sound and yeah. how that makes you feel. And he didn't seem interested in all the trappings and the dogma of yeah. the gear and the blinking lights. He's more interested in telling a story and relaying emotion. And it sounds like you kind of are in a similar mindset. Absolutely. I got a funny story for you about that. A good example is I made a record in England a few years ago, and it was in this studio called Assault and Battery, which is owned by Flood and Alan Mulder. Oh, so yeah. genius, huge inspirational idols for me. And also the fact a lot of my dad's favorite records are U2 records that Flood had worked on and shit like that. It's like, dude, I'm inside this fucking environment. I got to tap into this inspiration. I got to fucking learn, you know? And so the assistant that I was using for that record is Flood's assistant, and he's the nicest guy. His name's Cecil. Shout out to Cecil because he's a fucking great guy. But anyways, he was like, you know, oh, hey, like I'm going to set up this barbecue where we can like sit down and hang out with Alan and Flood. I want to introduce you and stuff. And so I'm like, fuck yeah. And like I had spent like a, a day or two. I was using Flood Studio and downstairs is Alan's studio. So like in between Alan's times, they're showing me his studio. I'm like, oh my God, like looking at his layout and just I'm fucking geeking out on like his SSL and his outboard Elijah compressor. And you know, I wonder what he uses that on. And wow, like I'm just so overwhelmed by the gear. And so when I'm sitting down and I'm talking with them, Flood's like, so, you know, you're from California. I'm like, yeah, San Francisco. You're just like being super cool. And eventually I just start pegging him with questions about gear. I'm just like, oh, by the way, I saw this in your room. Like, what do you like that on? Like, what do you? And Flood just started laughing and he turned to Alan and Alan kind of looked flabbergasted. Like, I don't know how to answer these. And Flood said, you remind us of Trent. And I was like, who, Trent Reznor? And he's like, yeah, because the only time we get pegged about gear questions is from Trent. And you're like, we feel on the spot because Trent is just like, what is that? Let's use that. Let's use this. And they're like, ah, I don't know. I just make music that makes me feel something. Like the gear isn't important to them at all. Where I'm just like so fucking nerded about gear. So like now I really understand where they're coming from. But at the time I'm like, what do they mean? Was that like a put down to me or what are they saying? It's just that they don't really care about gear. They just care about music. The gear is a fun part of the process of making emotional things. Let me ask you this. How do you think we as audio professionals can separate ourselves from the gear and get more into the emotion and the storytelling? How did that transition happen for you? 
I think it's part of the path. In order to get to that point, you have to go through that stage of life. The stage of, like, I really love that band, the 1975. And their drummer, he talked about in this one podcast how important it was for him to research what synths are on these songs that he loves. Oh, I heard they like a DX7. I'm going to get a DX7. Okay, I understand that E piano sound one, that's this song, that's this song. I like that. And it's like, you have to build your color platform. You have to build your actual sonic sound in order to not care about the gear. You have to be able to create your own path where when you walk in, you don't have to think about the gear. You can just rely on the gear helping you achieve your end result. In order to like get past the whole gear thing, you have to fucking dive headfirst into the gear thing. And so what are the aspects of, where do you seek the emotion? How do you harness the emotion, not only out of the player, but out of the tools that you're using? A lot of it is room sound. Everything I do, I really focus on three main things. It's impact, clarity, and depth. That's all I really care about in everything that I record. Like if I'm recording a snare, I want that snare to hit me and I want it to have some sound that it lives in, some space that it lives in, as opposed to coming out of a black nothingness. I want to be able to envision and hear the room and hear the impact and have that thing be this euphoric experience where I'm like, wow, that snare sounds great. That kick sounds great. That's awesome. And when I walk into this room, I plug into these preamps and I push it to a point where I'm like, bam, that's giving me that same impact, that same life that I'm feeling out there with that. But you know what? If I could get more top end, I could get a little bit more articulation. Let me plug in this EQ and let's work on that. And then it's just following the energy. Like, okay, I got that. But now let's throw on this compression and let's try to get more depth and let's woof more air into this sound. And it's like, okay, now that's fucking sick. Like, play that together. Okay, great. That's feeling really good. Now let's put this into the song. Okay, great. Like, this is really punching. This has great space. Maybe I need to move some of these things to help iron out this. But it's really just about making these things come out of the speaker and make me feel alive. Make me feel like I'm stoked on my process. I don't know if you watched The Last Dance with Michael Jordan, one of the best fucking documentaries I've seen in a while. But it's like the personal fucking competition in your head. It's like, I think this is cool. And then all of a sudden, I'm like, oh, someone's going to tell me that that fucking hi-hat is too sharp. You know what? I'm going to go out there and check that hi-hat. You know, I like imagine, <laughs> I imagine enemies and competition of mine being like, yeah, but dude, you know you could have fixed this. It's like, you're right. I could have fixed this. I should go fix this right now. I'm just like constantly fighting this distraction. And so at some point, I get to a point where like I can actually just listen and feel and that's when i know i've arrived there what do you do if you're faced with a band that is not up to the same task of digging into that passion and and, and creating that all the things that we're talking about what if they're yeah. playing is subpar how do you contend with that so this is the number one thing that i deal with on a daily basis now and it was the one thing that i i never really cared about because all I ever cared about was if I make this sound good and if I make this product great, everyone in the room is going to be stoked that we did this. And now that's not the case. And musicians and artists are emotional people. There's so much more to have to focus on when now that you get the gear part done, now that you get the thing sounding good, it's how do I get these people to respond best and how do I get them to actually 
perform the best. And so honestly, man, I'm the worst at the fact that I've replaced so many musicians on so many of my records all the time, dude. I play guitar and bass better than 90% of the fucking people that come in here. And it's just like, in my world, I'm doing them a service. If I pick up the guitar, play this one time, get it perfectly, give it back to them and say, next part, let's move on. And I've done that. And then I look over and the guy is crying. You know, it's like, oh shit, I totally like broke that dude's spirit by trying to do him a solid and just fucking move this project forward for his budget and on time. So like now I don't even care about what people are spending, how much time it is. I just care if everyone's comfortable and if everything is fucking cool. And that makes things take longer. And it means that we have to communicate more honestly, which makes things more dramatic sometimes for some people. It's one of those like, how do you get in shape? You got to work out and it sucks. How do you fucking fix the thing? You got to fucking get in there and work it out and it sucks. But the only thing that's going to make it good is getting in there and fucking doing it. So that's what I do as opposed to be like, I'll just fucking play it. Just give it to me. Instead, I spend the time working with the dude to get them to fucking do it. And how, how do they feel afterwards? Do they want to come back or, or are they yeah, just- Yeah, there's, there, there's much more of a rewarding process of that. And also, if they're willing to stick with it, then like, of course, they're teammates for life. They get it at this point. They depend on my coaching and on my process to help them achieve the end result that we desire. It's really about inserting myself as a necessary component in their creation of their audio. We're going to take it one word at a time and we're going to focus one word. And here, this is how you sing it. You know, I'm singing all day long. I'm playing guitar all day long. I'm playing drums all day long. I'm showing them how to do these things correctly as opposed to just doing it for them. Yeah. Takes a lot of patience, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I'm really bad at patience. I'm so abrasive. I'm so energetic. I just want to keep going. I want to keep it positive. Let's go. Just fucking let's. <laughs> so it's like, you can see how that becomes problematic. It's been a process for me to learn how to just relax. Cause like at the end of the day, I used to have so much anxiety about helping these guys finish their product on time for their budget. And like, I figured that was all that mattered. But instead they're like, no, I want the process to be meaningful and to feel not like you were this fucking crazy demanding asshole who just did everything <laughs> for me because I wasn't up to your par. I'm not trying to be that guy. I don't want to be demoralizing. I want to be inspiring to my artists. Do you get a lot of pushback from anybody about your methods of creating records from the bands? Not so much anymore, but like initially, the way that I kind of try to describe it to some people is that like a lot of these people see what I do as a service that I provide them if they pay. And they think that that means if they come and they have Sam Pura make their record, they will then get signed to X label and they will be successful. They think that that's the process and that yielded extremely disappointing results for them. I came into this thing, I thought I was a genius and this guy fucking yelled at me and told me I sucked and that I needed to give him my instrument and have him do like my parts for me. Like what the fuck is this delusional idiot doing? And then their project breaks up, nothing ever happened with them. They hate me. They think that I am part of the reason for the failure of the thing, you know? So like, I understand how that happens and the perception of that. But what I really try through these podcasts, through the videos, and, and like, what I really try to advertise is that I am a necessary component to help people reach their desired end result. And if their desired end result is to be a successful band with music and content that actually is going to have value, that 
takes a lot of time and a lot of talent and is going to be a lot of hard work. And those people who understand that are ready to come in here and put in that hard work and go through that hard experience of making something that counts. Yeah, makes sense. Hey, our friends over at DistroKid have created the DistroKid app for Android, which allows you to do some key things such as check your stats from Apple and Spotify, edit release metadata, upload new releases, and a host of other features. And remember, WCA listeners get 30% off your first year at DistroKid. And if you just head on over to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30, you can follow the link, get your 30% off, and be off to the races. So check our friends out at DistroKid and make sure and get your 30% off by going to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30. About a year and a half ago, I signed up for Sampley.app and I have to report back and say that I'm completely thrilled with it and it's working out quite well. It gives me the ability to upload mixes and masters to the website and provide a super pro looking interface for my clients. They can drop comments in the timeline. They can listen on any device. They can listen to it in high res. And if I want them to pay for the mix or master before they download it because of the Stripe integration, I can set that up. There's also Dropbox integration, which allows me to quickly create a folder in my Dropbox, which automatically syncs with Samply, makes it much more simple. You should check it out for yourself, but there's a deal to be had. So use the code WCA20. Go to Samply.app or Samply.app. Use the code WCA20, get 20% off, and you'll be off to the races. It's a fantastic tool that I think you're going to enjoy and will definitely make you look a lot more pro when you're delivering files to clients. Skip that whole business where you say, Send it to them over Dropbox. That looks totally amateur at this point. Use Sampley.app and use that code WCA20, and I think you're going to be really thrilled. Sampley.app. Check it out. Let's talk about the business of the Panda Studios. And well, first of all, I hate to date this podcast by talking about COVID, but yeah. how has this virus affected your business? surprisingly not too much. I could have been working this entire time. I specifically canceled and postponed some sessions, but these were sessions that people have deposits on, so they're just going to be postponed and that's it. If they wanted to cancel, get the deposit back, sure, I'd be totally fine with that, but they're just trying to make their record whenever we could actually make their record. So with that, more people are then booking time to try to get ready to start making their record in the future because they're sitting at home bored and they want to do that shit. So they're like, okay, well, I'll fucking put a deposit down with Sam and we'll do something else. So I've been continuing to get deposits, continuing to get bookings, and everything has been totally chill. So that's where I'm just like, all right, I've just been using this entire time. I'll force myself to take a few weeks break and I'll just fucking order everything that I needed to fix at my fucking studio, get everything off my wish list fucking fixed because now I'm going to have nothing but work to do. And all I want to do is walk into my studio and be like, everything works. All I am doing is focusing on what comes out of the speakers and like making this entire process awesome and fun and convenient and worthwhile. That's good. So you've been preparing for, yep. for the next wave of it. Exactly. Yeah. What do you think is the biggest mistake that studio owners could make during this time period? Not having a, a solid conversation with their bands about where they're going. So mm. for me, it was just like, hey, we're like pretty much in the immunity pack here. If you're staying at home and not fucking going anywhere else and chilling and not interacting with anyone else who's chilling, like we're pretty much in the immunity pack together here. So we're basically living in the same environment all together. So let's just fucking consider being smart about this. So and also 
my band's pretty much just fucking crash here and get DoorDash. So no one's leaving here anyways. You know what I mean? So like we're all just chilling and in the immunity pack together. Okay. So some bands are still coming in. Yes. I just started that recently. I just started up another session last week. And are you implementing, is people wearing masks or any of that business? Nothing right now. We're all just fucking chilling. And then we're using masks if we go out or anything. But no one's been going out. We're all just fucking chilling here at the studio and ordering DoorDash. So. And so far, so good, right? Everyone's chilling. Great, great. Yep. So talk to me about the business of the studio and what are your philosophies or techniques to make sure that the studio stays strong financially and grows so that you can be here for the long run? What are your methods of dealing with money? When I first started... I fell into this by just it being my passion. And like all of a sudden my passion is my career and I have to think smart about business. So I always say to people, instead of going to recording school, I wish I went to business school because I have so much more entrepreneurial business ideas that I would want to launch and, and follow through with, but I just don't have that skill set and I'm overwhelmed with actually running and creating my studio. So basically... There's a long history in terms of I was doing this just by myself, recording everything and just booking myself. And eventually, like it was right after I got this place and built it, it cost me like 50K to build this place. I was in 50K of debt. Then at this point, I'm just like recording fucking homies who are inconsistent with cash. And I'm realizing that I have consistent fucking rent and all these bigger responsibilities that I have to take care of. So I fucking freaked out and went and got a real job at Intuit doing tech support for QuickBooks and websites. And so I did that for like a year and a half and eventually got laid off because my sales numbers weren't great because I'm not a sales guy. So yeah, instead I was trying to be a nice tech support guy. So I took that unemployment money and built the second side of the studio here and was like, fuck it. And what was cool though about working at that job was that I made more money making records on the side than I did at that job. And that was very much like, if I just fucking focus on this full time again, it's going to be fine. I need to be comfortable with the anxiety of being a business owner and I need to not let that overwhelm me and freak me the fuck out. I just need to get comfortable with this is always going to be kind of difficult sometimes financially and especially because i'm always buying gear i'm trying to fucking have my shit like top of the line all the time i want my bands to just walk in and be able to play everything i have here i have drums i have snare i have four drum sets nine snare drums a zildjian cymbal endorsement and i don't even fucking play drums dude you know what i mean like i own so much goddamn fucking gear like I just finished getting my ninth Evertune guitar installed. I got 12 guitar amps here. It's expensive upkeep, but at the end of the day, everyone can just come here and make a really, really, really cool, unique record. And that's the charm of my place. The charm is the fact that I have everything here and I have a sound and I have this aesthetic that is going to be implemented into your workflow as opposed to just a normal recording studio. So like, that's always been what I focus on is like, making things current, updating the gear, getting things consistent, and also really focusing on trying to make my room something that freelance dudes will want to come in and rent, and which they do often, which is great, because they're like, fuck it, I'll just go to Sam's place. I'll spend 200 bucks a day to use Sam's room. I can use all of his gear, and it'd be way better than just sitting in my bedroom and doing a DI guitar, or pissing my parents off with a drum set in my garage. Like, I can do all of this at Sam's fucking studio. So like, that's the charm. It's like my equipment, the space, the convenience, the personality of it. That's what I've really focused on. It's funny too, it's just focusing on being myself. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, like well, what's the best thing? Being yourself, and like actually branding things more like that is the best way to do it. Anyway, so like with bookings and all that stuff, the other side story is 
I had multiple managers. I've had like four different managers. One of my managers is currently Billie Eilish's manager. And like all that shit was a fucking joke, man. None of that shit brought me in any money. It cost me a lot of money. It was very inconsistent. I was doing bro deals for people to try to get new opportunities. And it was so exhausting, so demoralizing, so financially hurtful. Like I was in the most amount of debt ever when I was making the coolest records I've ever done. And it's crazy because now that I manage myself, I am most creatively fulfilled, spiritually fulfilled, and financially fulfilled. It's just like I said, that whole backwards theory. The hard work is the best work possible. It's the best thing to do. If it's going to be hard, it's totally worth it. Tell me about the problems that you encountered with management. Why was it like that? They are only managing influx. They aren't actually getting you new work. And so then they're just taking percentages off of the influx. And then also, they're then trying to do bro deals with other fucking bands on their things. So they're like, hey, if you fucking do this band for cheap, this other band will probably be able to do it with you. It's just like all these hypothetical bro deals. And what you learn is the harsh reality that no one has your fucking back, dude. No one fucking cares about you. These people aren't your friends. They actually don't have your best intentions. The only person who cares about you the most is you. I had to stop relying on being like, I'm in so much like financial anxiety because I'm allowing other people to do all my communication and to be able to like rely on them to create structure here. That's a fucking joke. I need to actually pick up the reins and take control out of all of this. Everything that was going wrong was basically that I wasn't managing things, you know? There's a parallel here to you encouraging, say, the guitar player doing their overdubs, yeah. letting them do the part, no matter how hard it is, letting them take responsibility for their parts, which is basically what you did for your own businesses. Absolutely. Take responsibility for what you had to do to stay financially afloat and stay focused on the task at hand. Yep. It's just one of those other things, too, where it's like, dude, gut instinct, following intuition, That's that shit sounds fucking lame as fuck for lots of people, but it's so fucking goddamn true. Anytime it hasn't felt right, my head overrides it and goes, no, man, it's going to be totally fine. And it never is. It fucking never works out. And I always kick myself because I'm like, I fucking knew it was going to work out. I've seen Jack Joseph Pua talk about shit like this. It's like, I shouldn't put that glass there. It might fall over. Glass falls over. Why did I put that there? I knew I shouldn't have put that there. I, uh, my intuition was telling me not to put that there, but I, for some reason, was like, it's going to be fine. I just follow my intuition at all times. My intuition is scary and it, it makes my mind be like, I don't know if this is right, but it feels right. That's really what I try to do at all times is be focused, be present and just follow what I think feels right. I identify with that so much. I used to have the uncanny ability to just hear voicemails and know whether or not a project was right. I remember I had a, a studio in San Francisco in Petrero Hill and I was renting that space from my friend and I remember the phone ring one day or no, no, he was checking the voicemail for the studio and, and this message came across and he goes, you should take that gig. And I was like, no way. That yeah. sounds like a disaster in the making. And, and yeah. he goes, oh, I'll give it to the other guy that rents space here. Then I was like, Psh, go for it. Turned out total disaster. Exactly yeah, as I predicted. Yeah, it's fine-tuning that process of just trusting yourself and actually being able to listen to yourself. I always like to kind of describe it as like, you have to either be irrational or delusionally irrational sometimes to actually follow what feels right, but everyone else is telling you it's wrong. And, you know, all your peers are just like, I don't know about that, dude. It's like, 
dude, I don't know, man. It feels right to me. I need to do this, you know? And if it doesn't, then you're like, fuck, I know exactly what I'll never do again. The whole thing is just now I look forward to the struggle. I don't know if you've ever heard of that book. I think it's The Art of Not Giving a Fuck. Yep. Uh, yeah, that whole fucking thing. It's like, wow, what a surprise. Everything that's worth it in life is hella fucking hard work. How funny is that? You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> Like it's surprisingly just like chilling and doing nothing actually hella sucks. Yeah, I would agree. Well, so as far as the financial end of the studio, you said I'm constantly buying gear, this guitars, drums, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Are you keeping a nest egg there in case for a rainy day? Yeah, sure. It is nice that I got a bunch of good shit that I could sell if I ever need to. And or if I ever die, then my wife can just be like, all right, I made some money and we're cool. You know what I mean? But yeah, I've never really thought about gear as the investment. I've always just thought of it as I prefer to use analog gear for my process and I want to create workflows and signal flows that are consistently dedicated to the sources that I record. I've tried to really describe this to people recently too. I fucking hate calling my place a recording studio. Like it's really not a recording studio, it's a production facility. We're producing music. This entire environment is used to produce and create fucking music and create the highest fidelity possible audio with workflows that are fun and consistent and reliable and inspiring as opposed to a computer in a room that sounds good. So I wanna have drums set up all the time. I wanna have guitars set up all the time. I don't want to have to switch mics. I don't want to have to switch channels. So everything I've ever done is the process of building the best possible channel for everything I do and mm. like not cutting corners. So it's not like I'm going to dive into fucking debt to do it. It's like every time I get an opportunity to upgrade and to follow my desired signal path, I'll fucking do it. You mentioned your wife. So you're married and I'm curious yes. about your work-life balance and how your passion for this, does it jive with your marriage? Yeah, so my wife is amazing. She is a neuropsychologist. She works out of Kaiser and Tracy, and she is fucking awesome. What's really funny about her is that I always like to say she doesn't really like music. She doesn't really like to listen to music or anything. So she's a really good target audience opinion for me. When I come home, I want to show her stuff. And she has really, really, really good logical complaints about things. Like I said, like the voice in the back of my head that's like, your wife's going to be like, that vocal is so boring. And you like, why didn't that lyric rhyme with this other one? Like, she's just a basic, <laughs> basic human being that if music is going to be entertaining to her, it has to be distracting and perfect. I really like that about her. But also, it's nice that I just go home and I can turn that part of me off. And it's funny, too, because she always says it. She's like, thank God you have the studio because I can't exist without my fucking studio. I fucking would not be a normal human being. I have to put this energy somewhere. I got here at 730 this morning. I was fucking modding gear, fucking making cables, playing drums and tuning up drums. And then, all right, we're going to do this podcast. And then I'm going to go home after this and like shut down everything. Like I have to have two separate lives and it's the best way to have that balance. I used to work 24 seven all the time. And so now like I, I don't work weekends. I specifically don't work weekends, which is great because the freelancers use the fucking studio on weekends. And if people want to book weekends, it's because they have a job and they can pay the higher rate. And I'm like, dude, I don't work weekends. So you're gonna have to pay me good money if it's gonna be on a weekend. And they're like, that's totally fine. That works for us. It's chill, man. I have my two days off. She works four tens. So she only works Tuesday through a Friday. So it's pretty awesome. So we usually try to hang out on Mondays if we can. And yeah, home life, work life, it's great. What are your interests outside of audio? Where do you seek inspiration? I love watching movies. I read Wikipedia the entire time. I'm constantly on fucking Wikipedia and Reddit. <laughs> I seek information. I seek like cool shit. Some of my favorite subreddits are like today I learned or explain like I'm five. 
I'll just go down the rabbit hole in anything. Mm-hmm. I fucking love it, man. So yeah, I just, I love to just like utilize that time to find things that inspire me to go to the studio and apply myself and make cool shit. I really like fine art. I find fine art to be the coolest. Fine art, chef cooking shows, architecture. I find all of that's like extremely similar to what I try to do. Like I'm trying to build things that are just spiritual environments that make you feel, you know what I mean? Like, and mm-hmm. I'm just like, I, re- I totally respect the workflow and the methodology of a chef and a fucking architect. And have you ever watched that show? It, it's on uh, Netflix. They talk about a bunch of different artists. One of them is the guy who created the Jordans. But then they talk to this stage director and like this one art guy. I vibe on that shit so much. That's all I want to watch all the time. It's just mm. like, Tight ass people doing super fucking tight shit all the time. Yeah, I, I really get a, a big kick out of watching the Masterclass video series. And oh, that's cool. Yeah. Watch Gordon Ramsay tell you how to make the perfect steak or, you know, yeah. listen to the woman who created Spanx, like have her talk about business and what she's yeah. learned and, and her victories and failures. What have been some of your victories and failures of note that means something to you that you can recall immediately and say, ah, yeah, this. This was a victory. This was a failure. I mean, I could walk you through the chronological order of each one. Like, <laughs> I constantly fucking obsess over my mistakes and my wins and how to apply that to today. I always try to tell people, they're like, what's the best record you ever did? The one I'm doing right now. That's um, what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to make this moment count and make it the best possible thing. And I'm taking everything I've learned and applying it to right now to maximize this potential of myself and put this into this moment and try to make this the best thing possible. The biggest problem that I have is I always think about, like I said earlier, all I really cared about is making the content good and making sure that I got over the finish line. I did the record for the budget. I did it within the time and I made it and it's actually good. Aren't we all happy? And everyone's like, well, we passed the finish line. We did win, but the car exploded after the race. You know what I mean? And it's like, yeah, yeah, but like we won. That's all I care about. But in the music industry, that's not what they care about. Actually, what they care about is it just being an easy process and have getting done. And the content sits to the side. They don't really care about the integrity of the content. They don't care about the quality of it. They just want it to be cheap and done fast. That became this really sad, demoralizing time where I was just like, all I want to do is win a Grammy and make a record that's like, I remember walking down the Eiffel Tower with my wife and I was talking to some guy that he was like an older guy from Australia. And he was like, what do you do for a living? I was like, I'm a record producer. I make records. And he's like, anything notable? And I'm just like, not that you would know. I wish I could be able to say, yeah, man, fucking Metallica, fucking ACDC, something huge. But the world doesn't really like that anymore. That fantasy of having this rock band just be like this global fucking thing is not realistic anymore. And that's demoralizing, but also inspiring because I'm like, well, how can I make this have an impact? How can I help this project become the most important thing to music? As delusional as that sounds, that's what I want to do. I want to contribute to the world and make something where like when I walk down the Eiffel Tower and they're like, anything notable? I'm like, yeah, this record. And they're like, wow, that was fucking Grammy album of the year. Congratulations, man. That's an album that means something to me personally. Like, that's all I want to do. That's what I'm chasing at all times. I just want to do that. Yeah, because I think the shared experiences of things has changed dramatically. I mean, how old are you? I'll be 35 tomorrow. You'll be 35. Yeah. Okay. So we got like 15 years between us. And my recollection of the past of shared experiences was all pre-internet stuff. Yeah. It's like when HBO came out, it was like, oh my God, we have one other channel now and everybody was watching it kind of a thing. So with music, it seems that we're at this spot where, I mean, you could be huge 
yeah. and very popular as a producer in a particular Such a genre niche market. Yeah. that the majority of the population has never heard of. Yeah, it's wild. And I think that, and I'm sure you would agree, that as long as you you feel successful in your heart and with Absolutely. the people that you work with, that that's important. Yeah. But yeah, it is, it's difficult to say, well, yeah, I worked on, and it's got to be like over the top. It's got to be like a Billie Eilish kind of a thing. Yeah, exactly. But I mean, the thing that I find ironic and is the thing that continues, this is where it pisses off a lot of people that I've worked with before. It's just the things that have been the most successful are the things that I can say everything went right. And I made sure that everything went right. The ones where I reached a point where I felt in my fucking gut, this is going to matter to someone. Those are the most successful records I've ever made. And so that's where I'm always fighting for that with my records. I'm always so emotionally invested in it. I want to reach this point where if I feel like it matters to me, I know people are going to fucking freak out about this and it's going to mean something to them. It's this weird delusional pursuit of ensuring that this project fucking hits me and makes me feel the important thing in my soul. You know what I always find challenging, and I think it would account for my, as I'm now 50, I'm driven more towards mixing and mastering more than ever, rather than the actual act of recording or producing. And there's no Grammy in my background whatsoever. Yeah. What I find interesting is the emotional drain that can come from putting your all into a project. Absolutely. And it going nowhere. The band doesn't promote it. The band breaks up. Nobody cares. That's tough. How do yeah, you man. deal with that? Again, that's like, you know, the strongest people are the most vulnerable people. How odd is that? So in order to go out there again, I have to be vulnerable and I have to be willing to be irrational and say, maybe this one's different. Maybe these guys are different. And it sucks because I've had so many falling outs. Absolute, like, like my best man at my wedding that I've made records for. I'm not even fucking cool with that dude anymore. Like, it's crazy how much emotional investment and, and shared memories and how much triumph we've experienced. It's like, okay, well, I'll just do that again with other people who, and maybe it'll feel worthwhile again. It's oddly irrational to like have to just continue to focus on that. And that's the thing is I had to learn to just literally just stop caring. I just had to be like, all right, I don't care if this guy thinks I suck I, or if I'm an asshole. I don't care about the money. I don't care about anything. All I care about is making this count. That's the only thing I care about. I really, really try to focus on that and also stay present and try to make the moment as comfortable and as those are the challenges. One, how do we make this count? And two, how do I make this fun and convenient for everyone? How do I battle this social challenge of reading the room and making this all fun for everyone? Mm -hmm. That's the, I used to not care about that side of it, but now I really care about both. So it's demoralizing and it's inspiring. I made this record a few years ago with this band called The Story So Far. And it was just, dude, I could write a book about everything that happened with that record. It was so up and down and it was impossible emotionally to navigate a lot of that experience. It was so financially draining, so spiritually, so creatively, so friendship draining. And it was like walking out of that experience was the most demoralizing experience I've ever had and the most inspiring experience I've ever had. It was so strange, dude. I was so inspired to make music and to continue to do tight shit. 
And the entire process made me feel so demoralized, like this will never, ever happen again. And I've lost all value and no one will ever want to make a record with me again. It's so, it's the constant anxiety that I deal with. How do I make shit tight? How do I keep going? And then also, how do I not let it fucking hold me down? Well, we're about out of time. So the website for people to check you out is thepandastudios.com. Yep. And or any social media of Sam Pura, my Instagram, all that stuff. Follow along. Be best friends. Hit me up. I'm always down to be best friends and chat audio and try to make tight shit. Well, we'll include links in the show notes to all this stuff so people can reach out and ask questions if they want to or hire you or whatever yeah, it is I appreciate they want that. to do. Well, Sam, thank you so much. It was great to meet you. And we'll meet in person because... I'm actually, yeah, I'm like 40 minutes away from you. I'm in Lafayette. You got to come over and see the studio. You'll love it. Ah, I totally will. Yeah. Awesome. Will you take care? And thanks for chatting with me today. Thank you very much. Our friends over at Cali Audio have just introduced the brand new LP UNF system, which is meant to give you everything you need from a studio monitor in a package that you can basically set up anywhere. And the system is specifically designed for your desk. So no matter how else you're using your desk, reflections from the drivers to the desk to your ears are accounted for, giving you a perfectly clear picture of your mix that you can rely on to translate well. Whether you're putting them on stands behind your desk, on a desk away from walls, on a desk against a wall, on a desk on speaker stands away from the walls, there's a number of configurations and they have settings on the back to accommodate all of that and more. And if price is a concern, never fear. They're priced at $299. That's right, pretty affordable. Head on over to caliaudio.com and check out the new LPUNF. Sam Pira here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Thanks so much for being here with me today. I want to thank everybody that helped out with the show. That includes Anne-Marie Plo in the editing, Cliff Truesdale on the Working Class Audio theme music, and Chuck Smith for his superhuman voice. Connect with me on LinkedIn. Sign up for our email list on workingclassaudio.com. Spread the word and tell all your friends. And until next time, take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life, many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on gearspace.com. So check that out.